okay. Someone came up to me before the last service to let me know that they, they went and got one of the books that I recommended last time, and they've read the first chapter, and it's the most terrifying thing they've ever read. So, um, for more terrifying recommendations, tune in today. All right, this is God and Gender, Lesson 3. This is called Culture and Contradictions. In our last lesson, we learned that there are rare intersex conditions, but that those disorders of sexual development don't in any way validate transgender ideology. We also learned that the scientific evidence for trans identity is very scarce. And so we began asking the question, why do people experience uh, gender dysphoria, or why trans? And we made it through nine possible factors, abuse and trauma, adolescence and puberty, anxiety about manhood, womanhood, and sex, Disabilities, in which I'm including various types of physical suffering, public education, the embargo referring to just the shutting down of anybody who tries to disagree, entertainment, healthcare, and um, mental health approaches, including the affirmation only um, approach that is frequently mandated uh, today. So I'm going to add nine more now. And I'm not at all saying that these 18 are the only ones. These are just 18 that seem to be especially clear. Remember that these factors are serious and they call for great compassion and care. At the same time, remember that none of these factors gives us the right to reject our God-given biological sex and gender. None of these are a reason to choose to reject what God called me to be and created me. Um, to be. So let's move quickly through nine more factors. So in our list, number 10 is peer pressure. Um, this is sometimes referred to as rapid onset gender dysphoria or referred to as the, the cluster effect, which is like a sociology term. Basically, you know already, young people are especially vulnerable to wanting to fit in and to the fear of missing out. And so it has, you can read the research about this in other places, but just very briefly to summarize, it's commonly observed that once a certain number of young people in a place start to come out as transgender, there can suddenly be a significant number of their peers who follow suit. Now, transgender ideology fiercely tries to deny this because they want to portray trans as coming purely from our authentic psychological self. Nobody else is influencing me here. And yet, anybody who honestly observes human nature knows that we are very vulnerable to the influence of crowds. There's a reason why Douglas Murray's book is called The Madness of Crowds. (laughs) And even when we think we're going against the flow, it often turns out we're going with it. So, peer pressure. Number 11 is philosophies. Transgender ideology is like a great-grandchild of the philosophies that dominate our society today. And if you look up the family tree, they all look like each other. Um, so it has, it has ancestors like Gnosticism, which is the idea that our body is not part of our true self. Um, Nancy Piercy words it very well. Gnosticism is a fractured, fragmented view of the human being in which the body is treated as separate from the authentic self. 
Secularism, which tries to eliminate all religious elements from society. Individualism, which exalts the individual far above everything else. Marxism and its descendants, its various you know, types of descendants, which teach that gender is nothing more than a structure of opposition, and so it's one of all the structures that have to be torn down and destroyed. Identity politics and intersectionality, which suggests that what is most important about you is how you fit into various categories of oppression. Which of those categories are you, are you part of, and how do those various oppressions inter, intersect? So we could go on all day about philosophies. Um, you could look at two of the books I mentioned previously, Cynical Theories and The Madness of Crowds. You could also, for Christian resources, um, if you haven't looked at Truman yet, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is a long, difficult, very important read. Uh, the shorter version is called Strange New World um, by Carl Truman and Ryan Anderson. I don't, uh, some of you might have heard that name, Ryan Anderson, because he, um, he wrote the book that Amazon still refuses to sell about transgenders, when, when Harry Became Sally, or something like that. It was Ryan Anderson's book. Um, so Strange New World is an excellent read on the philosophies. And if you missed our identity seminar last spring, go watch that. Uh, because in many ways, what we're talking about in this series builds on what we, what we talked about in our identity seminar. Okay, so why trans uh, philosophies? Number 12, uh, purpose and meaning, or the lack of purpose and meaning, or the attempt to try to find purpose and meaning. Uh, Douglas Murray does a great job of explaining this right from the very first page of his book, um, Dr. Wirakun says, human beings find meaning by looking backward at our history and our traditions, outward at our families, our churches, our, our, our relationships in society, and upward at God. Backward, outward, and upward. And modern Western society has thrown out all of those things. Religion is oppressive, family is oppressive, tradition and history are oppressive. All that's left is to look inward. You are the center of the universe, and that means that what you have to give you meaning today is your feelings about yourself today. That's the entirety of your meaning and purpose, how you feel about you today. And so that leaves people grasping. Number 13, why do people experience gender dysphoria? Satan. I am not saying that people struggling with gender dysphoria are demon-possessed or anything like that. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying that when there is an ideology that is so confusing, so misleading, so contradictory, and so damaging, you can be sure Satan is involved. It is hard not to see gender dysphoria amplified by evil suggestions from the forces of darkness. Jesus himself described Satan as a liar and the father of lies. Trans ideology is anti-reality. It is anti-woman. It is anti-man. It is anti-human. So who do you know that is anti-reality, anti-woman, anti-man, and anti-human? That would be the devil himself. So transgender ideology is right up his alley. By trans, number 14, the sexual revolution and hypersexualization. 
Humans have sometimes understood that sex is very powerful. And so they have understood sometimes that it is necessary for there to be certain guardrails around it because it can give life and it can destroy. But the sexual revolution, which is often pinned to the 1960s, moved society toward complete sexual freedom with no boundaries at all except something that they called love, which wasn't love um, at all. And then along the way, two things, scientifically, uh, new forms of birth control and legalized abortion made it more and more possible to do whatever you feel like without there seeming to be very many consequences. And since then, our Western societies have become more and more hyper-sexualized. I haven't read it yet. It's on my desk (laughs) to get to right away. But there is a lot of buzz right now about a brand new book. This is not a Christian book, so I can't promise you what's in it. Um, But there's a lot of buzz right now about a book by Louise Perry that's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Um, I expect there will be a lot of things to disagree about in that book, but it is making some waves right now. The point is that transgender ideology is just the latest and most extreme fruit of the sexual revolution so far. We are not only free to have sex with whomever we want, whenever we want, with no obvious consequences, at least for us, but now we can even choose to transform our body into a different sex. You see how that is the sexual revolution continuing its march of destruction. This connects directly to number 15, sexual thrill. Now, we've come to another point this morning. When we talked about peer pressure, that's something trans ideology does not ever want to talk about. So number 10 and number 15 are two things that trans ideology wants to bury with all of their might. In other words, they don't want anyone to bring up the possibility that for even a small portion of people, and I'm not at all saying it's true for all people who struggle with gender dysphoria, but there are at least some people for whom a gender transition is sexually thrilling. Why does trans ideology not want to say that out loud? Because if even a small portion of people who identify as trans do it for the sexual thrill, then it raises huge questions about things like restrooms and locker rooms and other public spaces that have traditionally been separated by biological sex. So they... they Someone said, it's almost like you have to make it sound like transitioning is the most miserable thing ever because they don't want anyone to say that from a sexual standpoint there's something thrilling about it. Number 16, why trans sin? No matter how hateful we might be accused of being, we cannot ever abandon the biblical truths that, number one, transgender ideology is evil and false. And number two, it is a sin to choose to transition to a gender other than one's God-given biological sex. It is a sin to do so. Ever since the first sins of Adam and Eve, the human heart has tended to go astray from God's ways. And as we go astray, we tend to rebel against God's calling for our lives. For example, God calls us to give. 
But what do we want to do? Get. We want everybody else to give. God calls us to sacrifice for others, but we want other people to sacrifice for us instead. And so this is what the human heart does. We go astray from God's calling. And so when God calls us to be male or female, it's not any surprise that something in us bucks against that. And also, as our hearts go astray, our hearts tend to look for new places to find our identity other than God. We try to find a new earthly identity in athletic success or video game success or beauty or money or job achievement or, or gender. And so when we ask why trans, one of the factors we must include is the tendency of the human heart to rebel against God's will and God's ways. Now, keep in mind, this is number 16 in a big list. I'm not saying it's the only factor that has anything to do with someone struggling with gender dysphoria, but it is a factor that we can't certainly leave off the list. However, having said that, we're not saying that every person who struggles with gender dysphoria is sinning and rebellious because suffering is another reason why people may experience gender dysphoria. Many of the things we've listed in these 17 things involve some type of suffering. But the reason why I list it separately is to make sure we understand that for some people who experience gender dysphoria, that experience itself is a very profound suffering. They didn't sign up for it. They didn't want it. They didn't say, wouldn't it be great to wish I was in a different body? Now, maybe some people do that. But for other people, it is a struggle that came upon them for reasons they don't know. And so, it is suffering. Now, that doesn't mean they should just give in to it. It doesn't mean they should believe trans ideology. It doesn't mean they should transition to another gender. But we've got to remember that gender dysphoria can be a very painful kind of suffering with no quick and easy fixes that just magically make it go away. Here's the bottom line, and I'll come back later to what the church can do. We have to be the kind of church where a brother or sister could say to you, I think I'm actually struggling with that. And you would not freak out. You would say, okay, I struggle with lots of stuff. Our hearts struggle. Let's walk through this together. What's going on? What are you thinking? What's God's doing? What have some of the influences been? Okay. The author of Hebrews speaks of our struggle against sin that we have to endure and that tempts us to grow weary and faint-hearted. There is hope in Christ, but that doesn't mean that the struggle will easily or completely go away. Has your hope in Christ made every temptation you ever face go away? No. And so gender dysphoria can be a very difficult type of suffering, and it can linger. No one should dismiss this or belittle this or joke about this. To feel this way is to experience real deep pain. Number 18, why trans technology? Um, You know, what do you say briefly? The Internet has made extreme pornography available to just about anyone of any age at any time. Um, Thousands of, tens of thousands of hours of things like Netflix have a powerful shaping influence on the minds of people. Social media has completely transformed the way people relate to one another and has had a massive impact on young people. Surely you saw the headlines this week about the huge new uh, lawsuit against Meta by 30-some states' attorney general. And also, a small 
that you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist at all to, to know that a small handful of big tech companies control the algorithms that influence the way our whole country thinks, and not just our whole country. And so if they want to promote transgender ideology in their algorithms, they can, and they do. And, um, and this is not... All of that is, doesn't even... That's even before we start talking about very direct trans influences online, um, especially through videos on social media. An endless array of transgender mentors who coach adolescents in the art of slipping into a new gender identity. Transgender influencers coach other adolescents on how to wheedle a testosterone prescription from a skeptical clinician. They advise teens to study the DSM diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria and prepare a pat story about how they always knew they were trans. They tell you to claim that you've felt this dysphoria for a very long time. They convey the urgency of transition. If you don't do it now, you never will. You're already at high risk for suicide. And this isn't happening in a professional's office, though maybe some of that is. This is happening on the... This coaching is happening on the phones that 10, 11, 12-year-olds are, are carrying around with them with no parent in sight at the park. So number 18 is technology. So we see here a very powerful set of influences, often very damaging influences, that might be factors related to gender dysphoria and transgender choices. As we look at this 18-point list, remember again that transgender ideology paints a very simple picture instead. They say a trans person is just someone who has looked inside and psychologically realized that they are a different gender than what was assigned to them at birth. That's all there is to it. Just an individual's own psychological realization. And that is what makes a person trans, according to them. But in reality, the picture is far more complicated. There are far more factors, and people are not nearly as free from outside influences as they feel that they are. Okay, so that finishes that list and the question of some of the reasons why people may experience gender uh, dysphoria. I'd like to move on now to a set of contradictions that I hope will be helpful for us to understand. Some of this will be a little bit review. Some of this will be definitely new in some very important ways. Number one, transgender ideology contradicts reality. Now, we talked... Uh, two, two lessons ago about, about some of the chromosomal abnormalities that can lead to disorders of sexual development and things like that. But those disorders don't change the underlying reality that our biology is what it is, and my psychological sense cannot override that biological reality. So even if someone who is born a male can decide to be a female... And even if the schools are then required to treat them in every way as a female, and even if the government fully treats him as a female, and even if he takes hormones and goes through transition surgeries, and even if it's a crime for me to use the word him to refer to him, and even if we convict other people of crimes if they fail to fully affirm him as a female, and even if he lives every aspect of his life according to female cultural stereotypes... Even if all of that is true, 
take an x-ray and look at the proportions of his skeleton, and he's a male. Look at the chromosomes in the DNA, and he's a male. It's Dr. Wirakorn, uh oh, I don't have it on here. Dr. Wirakorn says, Wirakun says, reality cannot finally be ignored. It's still there, and it's not going away no matter how much you try to shred it. And that's not a Christian statement. It's just actual reality. Dr. Andrew Walker has an interesting section in his book in which he asks, should we expect non-Christians to agree with us? And his answer is that when we come to these fundamental realities, Christians and non-Christians should actually be able to agree. It's not uniquely Christian to say that male and female are different, that there is a pattern of male and female sexuality built right into reality, and that living in accord with reality is part of what it means to be human, regardless of what your religious beliefs are. Sometimes this is called natural theology, truths that should be evident from creation and don't require a specific religious belief. If we can't agree together about a fundamental reality like male and female, it's going to be hard to have civic societies in which we can coexist together. Um, So we can seek common ground, even with those who don't share our religious beliefs. And when it comes to gender, I think we should do that, especially on the political side of things. However, the disappointing reality is that if you find, when we find, that there's a certain point at which we can link arms, so to speak, very briefly, with those who don't agree with our faith but do want to view reality with us, we will find that we can only link arms with them very briefly before our paths dramatically diverge. And this is a, an experience. When you read the secular books that criticize transgender ideology, this is an experience you have over and over again. You read one page, and you're like, yes, I agree with you. And you read the next page, you're like, no, 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 that's terrible. Because while we might agree with them on some basic reality of male and female, their worldview is completely unbiblical. And so they go in all kinds of unhealthy directions. So there are narrow limits on how much Christians and non-Christians will agree on these things, yet we should be able to agree on certain fundamental aspects of reality, such as male and female. So, number one, transgender ideology contradicts reality. Number two, it contradicts itself. And I've already pointed out some of these, but just to run through some examples again, what one we've already mentioned is that, according to the ideology, gender is something you're free to choose for yourself. Remember, infinite number, you can choose whatever you want. And yet... You uh, were born this way, like you, you, you discover it about yourself. Kids know who they are, um, which is not about choosing it. It's about, so it's, it's very contradictory. Um, another contradiction is that they say that gender is unchangeable. Why would we say that? They say gender is unchangeable when they say conversion therapy is a crime, you will badly damage anyone if you ever try to help them um, uh, with their gender dysphoria in a way other than affirmation. And yet, they say that if you want to change your mind tomorrow about your gender, that's fine. You can be a gender or gender fluid or um, change your gender every day if you want to. So which is it? Is gender unchangeable or is gender something you can change every day if you want 
They say that it's oppressive to talk about any biological differences between boys and girls. And yet, the statistics are very clear that biological girls struggle with gender dysphoria much more than biological boys, which is an interesting irony if biological differences don't matter. They say it's oppressive to talk about any biological differences between boys and girls, and yet they say that you can have a boy's brain in a girl's body, which is a very biological sentence. They say it's oppressive to talk about any biological differences between boys and girls, and yet you can find countless videos online in which girls are told that testosterone is incredible and what it will do for your body is amazing. It will change you in amazing ways. Now, which is it? Are biological differences inconsequential or are male hormones an awesome thing that will make you who you really want to be? They say that hormones are amazing and can be the best thing that ever happened to you except at the same time your own sex hormones must be terrible because you need the other sex's hormones. They're the awesome ones. They say that science proves that trans is real. At the same time, they say that science is oppressive and you can never trust it. They say that there is no source of any objective truth, that the whole idea of truth is oppressive and must be thrown down. Meanwhile, no one can disagree with transgender ideology. It is true. So, one of the traits of Marxist thinkers has always been that they do not stumble or self-question in the face of contradiction, as anybody aiming at truth might. That is very well said. From a Christian standpoint, we would say, Satan loves confusion. And transgender ideology is full of confusing contradictions that help to obscure the lies. You know what it's like, right? When you're in a conversation with someone and they're telling you things and you know there are parts of that that aren't true, but they're so clever in mixing everything together, you can't ever get down to what's not true. They keep you spinning in circles. It is like that. Okay, number three, transgender ideology contradicts the foundational principles of healthcare. Okay, so we already talked about one part of this. To begin with, transgender healthcare is based upon the self-diagnosis of the patient since there is no medical way to verify transgender and treatment is driven by the request or demand of the patient. I can't think of any branch of medicine outside of cosmetic surgery where the patient makes the diagnosis and prescribes the treatment. If a patient comes to an oncologist and says, I have cancer, give me chemo, no ethical oncologist is going to say, sure thing, here you go. They're going to test. They're going to check. They're going to take their professional understanding of treatments and apply it to that situation. A foundational principle of healthcare is that a clinical professional does not give in to a patient's self-diagnosis or a patient's own treatment plan if it contradicts professional judgment. I'm not saying that there aren't people who do it. Of course, there are medical professionals who do it for the money, but they should not do it. But even more seriously,
But even more seriously, transgender ideology is this bizarre area in which medical professionals are actually giving people diseases. Try this. Go look up the definition of the word disease. Go look up what a disease is, and then compare that to what cross-sex hormones do to the human body. Don't even include surgical transitions, just what cross-sex hormones do to the human body. And you will see that what cross-sex hormones do is they take a body that was not diseased and they give it a disease. That body has disorder and dysfunction that it did not have before. The term for this is an iatrogenic disease. It's a disease caused by medical treatment. Now, normally, iatrogenic diseases are the result of tragic errors. A medical professional made a mistake and it results in disease. But in the case of transgender hormonal treatments, the disease is intentional. It is prescribed by the healthcare professionals. And to go even further then, in transgender ideology, medical professionals actually amputate healthy, functioning bodily organs at the patient's request. This is not the same thing as plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery, because these are healthy, functioning bodily organs. In GRS, which is not called GRS anymore. Now today you have to call it gender affirmation surgery, not gender reassignment surgery. In GAS, perfectly healthy and functioning urological and reproductive organs are destroyed, removed, and irreversibly transformed and damaged. Intentional harm is done. Surgeons find it unethical to honor a person's request to amputate a healthy limb. Yet, When someone wants to amputate or remove perfectly functioning genitals, the spirit of the times insists that such requests must be honored. So, transgender ideology contradicts the foundational principles of healthcare. Number four, it contradicts the ideology of LGB. Now, you're used to hearing LGBT, right? But LGB and T completely undermine each other. Because LGB, by definition, is based on your biological sex and the biological sex of the people you are attracted to. When the LGB movement talks about men and women, male and female, they are talking about biology. There is no LGB discussion without it. That is the complete opposite of transgender ideology, which hates the idea that biology matters. Trans ideology says, how dare you say that biological sex is a defining part of who you are? And so they say men and women, male and female, have to be defined by psychological gender identity, and if you try to tie it to biology, you are an oppressor. So by definition, biological sex is very important. It's definitionally important to LGB. And by definition, biological sex is arbitrary and oppressive and must be discarded for T. So we think of this like a coalition, and yet it directly directly contradict each other's ideologies. Number five, transgender ideology contradicts the ideology of feminism. Historically, feminism fights for the rights of whom? Women. Which is whom? But transgender ideology has completely redefined what a woman is. A woman is no longer a person who is genetically or structurally or anatomically a female. A woman is no longer a person who can have babies and periods and breastfeed. 
In transgender ideology, a woman is anyone who says she is a woman. That's the entirety of womanhood, which completely undermines everything feminism stands for. As a matter of fact, if transgender ideology is true, feminism has been a huge waste of time because it's been completely misunderstanding reality the whole time. And so there is actually some really sharp conflict um, between serious feminists and transgender activists. They do not like each other. Number six, transgender ideology also claims to love children while turning them into lab rats. You guys have known me long enough to know I am not prone to dramatic language just for the fun of it. So I have this sentence this way because it is just factually a good way to say it. Transgender ideology manufactures inauthentic trans identities by indoctrinating vulnerable, impressionable children into making self-reinforcing and life-altering decisions. The same people who want to be certain that we make sure that chickens and pigs have plenty of room in their pens are not afraid to give powerful drugs to children at the child's request with no parental knowledge when it's unknown what the long-term consequences of those drugs are. And I, I know I haven't talked yet about the safety of hormonal and surgical transitions, but the, simply su- the simple summary is that these are very experimental. They're at a very experimental stage. The data about their safety is not looking good, and the long-term consequences are still mostly unknown. So Alan Branch is right to say this is what is known as a human experiment. They are experimenting on children. People today freak out when we talk about experimenting on animals. Your shampoo bottle assures you they did not experiment on animals. But we are experimenting on children with these treatments. Dr. Weirakun, why isn't this considered medical malpractice? Why isn't this considered child abuse? By the way, Dr. Weirakun is a... um, She is a doctor in the biology of sex. That is her expertise. Um, She is not uh, an inflammatory kind of a person, and she is Australian. I'm going to tell you about her book next week, but she is putting everything on the line to say the things that she is saying. It It is remarkable. She is a woman of courage. Why isn't this considered child abuse? Meanwhile, they tell us that we're mean to kids. Number seven, it divides and damages in the name of peace and love. I think, I hope I've demonstrated that in many ways. All right, I'd like to finish up this morning with a few more quick factual matters. I'm trying to get the facts done so that we can move on in the next two weeks. How common are hormonal and surgical transitions? I'm not sure anyone knows very accurately, especially since the hormones are so available on the street um, or without a normal process of medical professionals being involved. But what is very clear is that the numbers are going up very fast. That's, that's what we do know. So one Reuters investigation, which what they did is they worked with a company that um, provides data for insurance companies. So they researched like hundreds of thousands of insurance claims and other medical records 
and they found that the number of children diagnosed with gender dysphoria went up 70% in one year from 2020 to 2021. That same research indicated that the number of children ages 6 to 17 placed on puberty blockers doubled between 2017 and 2021, and that the number of children receiving cross-sex hormones more than doubled in the same four-year period. They also made note of the Reuters as the ones who said those numbers are likely an undercount. So if those numbers have continued to increase at a pace anywhere near that, then today the number of children diagnosed with gender dysphoria this year, the number of children receiving a new gender dysphoria diagnosis, must be well over 100,000. And the number of children receiving puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones will be in the tens of thousands. And that's all just in the United States. This is a little bit of an old number. This is from seven years ago, but the American Society of Plastic Surgeons reported that the number of gender surgeries for people who were born as females, so the number of transition surgeries, quadrupled from 2016 to 2017. Remember, we say 2015 was a really key year in transgender ideology going global and becoming very prominent. So 2016 to 2017, American Society of Plastic Surgeons said gender transition surgeries for females quadrupled. The, you will sometimes see the, the acronym WPATH, W-P-A-T-H, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. They're the accrediting body that sets the standards that most medical professionals follow for transgender treatments. In 2022, they removed all age limits for both medical and surgical intervention in their recommendations. 2021, they had suggested some age limits. 2022, they got rid of all of them. So the official standards of care followed by the majority of healthcare professionals today don't recommend any age limits for hormonal or surgical gender transitions. So, while there is no way to have concrete numbers that I know of, all the evidence indicates that the number of people undergoing medical transitions is increasing rapidly. Are those transitions safe? Well, we've already noted that by definition, these things bring disease and disorder to a person's body. They cause damage, often in permanent ways, even though the person signed up for it and desired it. The fact that the person wanted it doesn't change the fact that that's what the treatments do. So they're not safe. But there are also many specific ways in which research demonstrates that they aren't safe. And I, we can't get into all those details right now, but if you want to start, if you want to find a whole bunch of footnotes to medical uh, uh, journal articles and so forth, um, this will be on the slides in the recording. Um, I'll just give us two quotes from Dr. Wirakun. Current research indicates that blocking puberty has severe and often irreversible side effects, including impairing the cognitive development of the brain, decreasing bone strength, damaging cardiovascular health, and causing infertility. Um, and this book was published end of 2022, so that's pretty current, um, what she's saying there. Um, and she, if you go to that page, she has links to the research there. 
But it's not just the question of whether it's safe. We have to remember that especially with puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for teens, it's also the question of whether we might be blocking and changing the very thing that will help them through their gender dysphoria. In other words, the hormones we're messing with are the very hormones that are going to help them if they continue through puberty and adolescence. Puberty is a necessary God-ordained stage in a young person's growth and development into healthy adulthood. Any alteration of this natural process carries significant risks of permanent harm. But I promise you, YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and whatever else will not tell your kids that. It will assure them that these things are perfectly safe. So in this area of study, you will often hear reference to what is called the Dutch Protocol. And that phrase refers to the way in which the majority of gender care, the the majority of the standards for gender care today are based on a protocol of treating gender dysphoria that is based on a couple of studies from the Netherlands about the safety of these treatments. And so it's called the Dutch Protocol. And that has really driven gender dysphoria treatment for the last several years under the assumption that it proved that it was safe and best. But that research, those Dutch studies that supposedly set the path for this aggressive transition treatment is really quickly becoming widely discredited, not just by Christians, but in general. So you could follow. I gave you a short link there at the bottom. This is from January 2023, Uh, This is a pretty widely referred to uh, research paper on that. Um, So, thankfully, the Dutch protocol is, is starting to fall apart for those willing to look at the facts about it. Does anyone regret transitioning? Well, the simple answer is, of course, there are people who regret transitioning. But if trans activists had their way, you'd never hear about those people. And it's difficult for detransitioners because the transgender community, it's often called your glitter family. Your glitter family suddenly becomes very hostile if you detransition, especially if when you detransition, you question the way your transition was handled by your school counselor, therapist, your doctor, or anything like that. In other words, the best way to become an enemy of transgender ideology is to gender transition and then come back and say, wait, that was a bad idea. I was rushed into it. I wasn't told the whole picture. I was lied to along the way. Therapists didn't do their job. Medical professionals didn't do their job. And now I have irreversible damage. You can see Abigail Schreier's chapter 10. It is titled The Regret. Some of the latest statistics about detransitioning are found in Dr. Weir Kuhn's book. But I want to point you to something, a few things, a few things. First of all, that same Reuters investigation that I looked at earlier has an entire section on detransition. So again, this is not a Christian source. This is just Reuters. Um, And it's, it's, um, so we wouldn't agree with their conclusions, but it's very interesting on uh, detransition. You could see any of the many detransition websites and organizations. I'm not 
advocating everything on these sites. I'm not advocating that you go spend your time reading detransition stories. I'm just making you aware that there are lots of these places where people are trying to unite and share their detransition stories. If you want Christian versions of those, um, here are a couple of examples of places you could go where Christians are sharing their uh, detransition stories and also sharing hope in Christ. So, yes, more and more people are telling their stories of detransition, no matter how much it means they'll be hated or slandered. Now, just this week, this lawsuit was filed by a detransitioner against the American Academy of Pediatrics and, and against some of the leading physicians that have defined the protocol for America's gender care. If you've read Abigail Schreier's book, some of the doctors she talks about in her book are named in this lawsuit. They're in that a little ellipses because <laughs> I didn't include the whole big, long name of it. Now, maybe you've never before read a lawsuit, but I am genuinely telling you, you ought to go read the first few pages of this, of this one, and you ought to have it saved so that you can refer back to it. The first few pages are devastating. It's just called the introduction to the lawsuit, you will be so angry, but you will be glad you read it, and you'll be glad you have it. It is blistering. And I'm going to quote from just one sad section at the end of the introduction. Isabel is now 20 years old and longs for what could have been and to have her healthy female body back. The changes the testosterone have had on her body, and it goes on to describe all those after this, but are a constant reminder that she needed an unbiased medical expert willing to evaluate her mental health and provide her the care she needed, rather than a group of ideologues set on promoting their own agenda and furthering a broader conspiracy at her expense. I'm telling you, go read it. It is, it is heartbreaking. Does trans ideology result in unfair or dangerous situations for girls? Well, it certainly does. Many of us who have daughters have already experienced it to some degree when our girls have come running to us because they were in a place where they thought there were only biological women and there was a man there. Um, so, yes, it's happening. As Andrew Walker writes, the instances are just too numerous to document at this point. Now, you always have to give this caveat. No, that's not what I meant to do. Uh, you have to give this caveat that we're not saying that people with gender dysphoria are dangerous. That's not the point. The point is that laws that require anyone who claims to be a female to be fully treated like a female including in every public setting, those laws are ripe for exploitation by evil people. That's as obvious as it gets. For just bathroom incidents alone, you can ch check out this report from Family Research Center who, who has compiled a whole bunch of those. But bathrooms are just one category. There's the whole discussion of biological males competing in women's sports, what it means to have something like a National Women's Soccer League or Basketball League, or what it means to have a prep school that's, or a college that's specifically for women. What does that even mean? And it's not just group situations like that. It's also very individual situations like the... And this is an old story. This is from like 2002. But the Human Rights Tribunal in Canada that ruled that a 
uh, male who had transitioned to female was required to be given the opportunity to become a certified rape counselor for females. Now, ultimately, that ruling was overthrown by the Supreme Court in something like 2003, but it raises questions like, is a female rape victim allowed to ask if her therapist is a female, or would that be like a hate crime on her part to ask? Is a female athlete allowed to ask if her coach is a female? Is she allowed to ask if her teammates in the locker room are all females? Or is that a hateful thing for her to even ask? But you're not allowed to talk about those things. Just this week, you guys know about Eventbrite, which is one of the biggest ticket providers for things in the U.S. Um, Eventbrite refused to sell tickets for a event supporting women's rights, the Riley Gaines, you know Riley Gaines, right, that Riley Gaines was going to speak at. They, they, that's the embargo we're talking about two weeks ago. Why is it that any conversation about these issues has to be shut down? Like, what's really going on that we have to prevent people from even buying tickets to an event to talk about women in sports? What is going on here? As we reduce male and female to nothing more than our own self-assessment and self-announcement, it will result in more and more unfair and sometimes dangerous situations for girls. All right. So we've covered a lot of ground in the first three lessons of this. What I've, I've tried in these three weeks to give us just a big picture summary of what's going on in our society today and to the best of my little ability, and the reason why we've had to talk about all these factual things is the reason why we've spent the time getting into some of the details is because we're trying to confront the confusion and the lies sown by the devil. It's so many lies. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the God of life. You are not the God of death and destruction. Um, That has been sown by sin and by Satan. And so we pray that you would use your people and overthrow this ideology that is being so very, very destructive and so damaging to so many people's lives. It is an idolatry and a terribly damaging one. So we're praying for you as the God of life, as the God of love, as the God of truth, to work. Give us courage, give us strength, and use us for your own glory. And I pray for each person who's part of this church family, that as each of us struggles with our our bodies, our temptations, our, our flesh, as well as the world and all of its ungodly influences pressing upon us, that you would fill us with Christ and with your Spirit, that we would be able to walk in in truth and in your good ways. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.